0: Thank you. You may be seated. So I wonder if the name Leroy Jethro Gibbs means anything to you. He's the the main player in a TV drama series that I probably from the pulpit shouldn't admit, admit that I watch. Not only do I watch it, Um, I don't watch it on TV because we don't get network television at all, but Janet, for gifts on my birthday and Christmas, buys me season series, and so we will sit and watch and on a a good night after we watch an episode, I'll say, how about I pop some popcorn and watch another episode, and if she says yes, that's a good thing. (laughs) So, Leroy Jethro Gibbs is uh, the main guy. It's from NCIS, in case you don't know. NCIS stands for Naval Criminal Investigation something. Services, thank you. You know, some of you know too much. (laughs) And so, Leroy Jethro Gibbs, the character, is kind of a hero of mine, and I'll tell you why. There's three reasons. Um, One is, is because... He uses a flip phone. And uh, for a long time, uh, and his staff makes fun of him. I had a flip phone, and my staff made fun of me. And I really liked my flip phone, and I hated to give up to a smartphone, but I had to finally. Uh, More than that, um, Gibbs smacks his staff in the back of the head when they mess up, and I really want to do that. (laughs) And thirdly, he has rules. He's got all these rules, um, and when I was a youth pastor, I used to have rules, and I kind of liked that, like an example, and I shouldn't say this, kids, put your fingers in your ears, but rule number one, when I say to my youth staff, and they'd say, should we do this? I would say, rule number one, it's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission, and that's when we were trying to do something that we thought maybe our senior pastor or the deacons wouldn't approve of if we were going to you know, tear up some grass or something to I don't know, but uh, you got to be careful with that rule. <laughs> Indulging in grace a little bit there. So, something about NCIS, though, that you need to know, and you kind of realize when you're watching it, is that it's all about death. Every time a show comes on, it is about a murder. It is about someone dying, and they very much bring the camera onto the corpse. And throughout the episodes, um, you're repeatedly visiting down in the morgue. And they often, from different angles and different progressive states of the autopsy, take you to the body. And death is very, very amplified. And it occurred to me when I was watching NCIS some time ago that our culture is very, very obsessed with death. If you would take your clicker and click through the channels on an evening, through the dramas, you would find any number of shows that are built upon the theme of death, serial murderers, and the investigation of murders and death, and dying, and close-ups... We're obsessed with death. I'm not sure that's a healthy thing. But it also occurs to me when I come to church that Christians are obsessed with death. At least one death. And in fact, we're going to study that death this morning. It's the death of Christ. It might seem odd that believers in the Lord Christ are very, very obsessed with this death. Why? Let's read the account of the death of Christ as Matthew, as Matthew unfolds it in his gospel. It's in Matthew chapter 27, and Matthew gives us significant detail here. I want to read it for you. I want you to follow along. I would ask that you would engage your mind at a high level. Pay close attention to the scripture. You'll notice as Matthew is finishing up his gospel... And we're almost done. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will conclude our studies in the Gospel of Matthew with the great resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Matthew is concluding his, his account, his eyewitness account for the most part, although much of this chapter Matthew was not an eyewitness, um, his chapters get really long. There's 66 verses, for example, in chapter 27. Matthew is going into extensive detail on the final hours of the life of our Lord Jesus. We're going to pick it up with verse 27 in chapter 27. If you have an electronic version, you'll want to click on to the ESV translation. It's what I'm reading. Follow along in your copy of God's Word and And by design, let's just take our time and read this extensive passage of Scripture detailing the death of Christ. Verse 27, Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before Him, they mocked Him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on Him, and they took the reed, and they struck Him on the head. And when they had mocked Him, they stripped Him of the robe, and they put His own clothes on Him, and they led Him away to crucify Him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull... They offered him wine to drink, mixed with the gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down, and they kept watching over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. A little bit of irony there, isn't it? They could not have been more accurate. And actually, he did, and they didn't. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, that would be noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's, let us see whether Elijah will come down to save him. You see, Elijah, you recall, in the Old Testament, was translated up into heaven without dying in a fiery chariot. And so they believed that he would return. At some point, they thought that our Lord was saying, Elijah, when he was speaking in Aramaic, my God, my God, Eli, Eli, perhaps our Lord's lips and tongue were so swollen and dried out that he couldn't speak clearly. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rock split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the, his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him and Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and he laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What an incredible story detailing the death of our Lord Jesus. It occurred to me in my study and preparation over the last couple of weeks for this that there, there are multiple messages here we're only going to have one. So what I want to do is I want us to kind of step back now from the passage, and I want to look at it kind of at arm's length, and I want us to observe some realities about the death of Christ. The first being, number one, and it will help you, I think, to use your notes, but the first reality is that, in the, death, that the death of Christ was unmistakable. It really happened. In other words, don't ever say this. Don't ever say, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. One of the things that Matthew does so well is he details so many eyewitnesses and people who with authority could say he was dead. There's no doubt about it. You see, there's some popular theories that go around. One of them is called a swoon theory. It is that well, maybe he didn't really die. They crucified him and they took him down, and he really wasn't on the cross that long. And, and even though they jabbed him with a spear in his side and outpoured water mixed with blood, and they wrapped him, they put him in the tomb, he got in the tomb, and, and maybe he, the coolness and the rest, and he resuscitated. And he came around and he started feeling better. And maybe the disciples broke into the tomb and, and uh, got him free. And then they nursed him back to life. That's why the guards were so concerned about the, them faking some kind of resurrection. I want to tell you something. When you look at the facts and when you look at the account of the death of Christ, that is just utter nonsense. And one of the things that you never want to hear yourself say is, well, maybe he didn't really die. You see, what people are after there is they don't want to face the reality of the resurrection. They they don't want to face the reality of the power and authority of God. They don't want to face the truthfulness of God's word. They don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and that he would make demands upon our lives. And so they will come up with all kinds of nonsense to undermine the reality of what's really happening here. For example, let's just run down a list of the eyewitnesses. It's unmistakable. The death of Jesus Christ is unmistakable. He really died. The first person, first group of people that would know that, letter A, is the executioners would know that he was dead. The executioners. Now, Matthew doesn't so much detail the account of the executioners. In in verse 50, um, it says... And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, so there was some strength in him still. And then he yielded up his spirit. He at that point, died, you need to understand, I think Peter in Acts chapter 2 in preaching in Jerusalem after the resurrection accuses the Jews of murdering Jesus. And You can think of it that way, and they executed him, they put him on the cross, it was their intent to murder him, but you need to understand in the middle of all of this that God and Jesus were absolutely in control and that at exactly the right time, our Lord gave up his life at that point. They, it wasn't the nails that killed him, it wasn't the spear that killed him, he, at that moment, yielded up his life. The plan of God was complete, it was done, and he was absolutely in control every nanosecond of the entire executionary process. But when you look up at verse 36, after they had cast lots and divided his coat, which was evidently a seamless garment, the Bible tells us, so it was a, a piece of fabric that was valuable, they either threw some dye down or they drew straws or you know, pick a number between 1 and 10. Anyway, they figured out who got to keep the garment. They didn't want to cut it up. It was a good piece. Then it says in verse 36, then they sat down and they kept watching over him there. Then it says, precisely the moment when he yielded up his spirit. It also reminds us in verse 54 that there was a centurion among others, and those who were with him, they were keeping watch. Listen, they were watching him very closely, and the executioners knew exactly what they were doing, they knew exactly how to do what they were doing, and they knew exactly when he died. It's interesting that John gives us a little bit more detail about this. In fact, let's go ahead and take the time to turn to John 19. It's very interesting. John details out the activity a little bit more, and of the executioner's... And in John chapter 19, beginning with verse 31, this is what he says. John records for us, and John is going to make note in the passage here that he saw it all with his own eyes. Since it was the day of preparation, John nineteen thirty-one. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Let's just stop right there for a second and explain that. Now remember one thing. Jesus was being executed uh, uh, by religious leaders, not political leaders. So this was a religious execution. Think of it that way more than a political execution. That's why when they painted on the sign and nailed it to the cross above his head, they said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The irony is that they were exactly right, and they were proclaiming a testimony to the whole world exactly who he was, precisely who he was, but they thought he was blaspheming when he said that. And so they were, according to Old Testament law and Judaic law, they were executing him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God that was punishable by death. so this was a political execu- excuse me a religious execution, not a political execution, but it was being carried out under the guard and watch and permission of the political leaders of the day and that 's why the Roman soldiers were the ones who were executing him and nailing him to the cross and why Pilate had some say in things because the religious leaders were getting permission from the political leaders to carry this thing out at their place of execution. That's why they cared whether or not they left him on the cross into the Sabbath which was their high and holy day. They did not want to put him leave him on the cross because it was against their law, against Old Testament law, Mosaic law. And they were posturing at some level that they cared about the law. These guys were breakers of the law all the time, but, and they made up their own rules, but at some level they're positioning themselves to appear that they very much keep the law. So you see, when, when it was becoming evening and, and they were going to run into the Sabbath, it said that they asked Pilate for permission to have the legs broken of the criminals, including Jesus. So these guys are up close. So what happens is, When you get crucified, they knew exactly how to nail the nails into either a part of the wrist or lower hand where your joints and your tendons come together in such a way that it would hold the body weight and the feet the same way. And you're nailed, you're pinned to this cross with your arms spread-eagled, your feet down below you, and so your body sags out away from the cross with your arms back, and you can't breathe. Now think about the fact that most of the time when they're executing someone, and the Romans did this, it was brutal, it was a heinous form of execution. The Romans did it partly because of this. A lot of the criminals that they were executing, think about it, were young, strong men. And they didn't let you sit around prison and rot in this day. You were guilty, you got killed. They carried it out. And so you're dealing with... What's the demographic of, a, of these criminals most of the time getting executed? They're going to be male. They're going to be young and strong. And so they would hang on the cross. And there they are away from their bodies sagging out. It's hard to breathe. And they and to get a breath, they would have to make themselves push the weight on their on the nails that were holding their feet in place. So that was very painful. And they're pushing up so that they could straighten up their body so that they could get a breath could release the the tension on their diaphragm and get a breath in their stomach muscles. So here's what would happen. They would nail these guys to the cross, and sometimes uh, extra-biblical records tell us that they would be on the cross for multiple days before they ever died. So you've got, you got a young guy who's strong, who's committed murder or rape or robbery, and he's being crucified, and he's 22 years old. His organs are in excellent shape. His body is strong. He's only pinned to the cross by his extremities, and it takes a long time for the major organ systems of the body to shut down and for you to die until they become so weak that they can't push themselves up, and then they're taking little gasps of breath, and then ultimately they starve the major organs in the brain of oxygen, and that speeds up to death. So what they would do, if they wanted to hurry it up, and the guy wasn't dying quick enough, they would take a big heavy club, and they were big strong guys, and they would come up, and they would smash his shins, and shatter his bones between the knee and the ankle so that he could no longer push up and then he would just sag out hanging almost completely then by his wrists and he couldn't catch his breath and very quickly he would asphyxiate or starve his Systems of oxygen, and he would eventually die then much faster. So here they are, these executioners, and that's what he means back in John 19, um, and the soldiers came, verse 32, and then they broke the legs of the first, and then of the other who had been crucified with him, Jesus was crucified with these two thieves, they were still alive, and they smashed their legs so that they would die very rapidly then, but look what it says But when they came to Jesus, verse 33, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Do you know why they didn't break his legs? Well, he was already dead. They didn't have to. But ultimately, the reason they didn't break his legs is because the Old Testament prophesied that not one bone would be broken. It had to happen exactly the way Scripture said. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, verse 35, this is John. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John's saying, I was there, I saw it. I'm telling you exactly what happened. This is exactly how it happened. They didn't break his legs. He was already dead. And I take it that there's a Roman soldier standing there. He's probably got his hands on his spear. He looks up, and he just, and he puts the spear up through underneath the ribcage of our Lord, and it pierces up into the heart sac, and it's already accumulating water and death, and out it pours. And he's dead. I want to tell you something. The executioners knew that he was dead. We're back in Matthew 27. There is no doubt. Don't ever hear yourself say, well, maybe he swooned. Listen, Joseph of Arimathea knew that he was dead, and let's click these off. It's kind of interesting to think about what they saw and the position with which they approached the crucifixion. But we have some important spiritual realities that we want to get to. In the time that we have. Joseph of Arimathea knew that he was dead. 27, 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean shroud. And he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. He was evidently a wealthy man. And then he put a stone there to keep out animals and so forth grave robbers. Joseph of Arimathea is the one who went, reached up, and I assume with the assistance of the soldiers at some level, uh, unhooked him from the cross and took him in his hands. He knew he was dead. You know what's interesting about Joseph of Arimathea? This passage, by the way, is packed with irony. I've already referenced the irony of them mocking him for being the king of the Jews when that's exactly who he was. You couldn't make a more truthful statement but they thought they were mocking him when really they were proclaiming a testimony. Uh, Another interesting irony is... um, I I just forgot. (laughs) Um, It's third service. Um, Forgive me. Joseph of Arimathea... uh, Here it is. Joseph of Arimathea... um, he He was a Pharisee. He was a religious ruler. And... And it says, not in Matthew's account, but it, it says in uh, Luke's account, chapter 23, it says that he was a good and righteous man. You can look it up in Luke 23. It says that Joseph of Arimathea was a good and righteous man and that he was looking for the kingdom and that he had not consented To the death on a cross for Jesus. In other words, evidently Joseph of Arimathea was actually part of the council, or he was in attendance at the council when they voted whether or not to crucify him, and he refused to he refused to do that. He now cares so much about our Lord that in death he wants to place him in his own tomb. Here's a point that I made of interest. In John 19, where we were just a minute ago, you don't have to turn there, but it says there that Nicodemus also, who had come to our Lord by night, assisted Joseph in taking him down off the cross. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Here's the irony that i just forgotten, now I remembered. Isn't it interesting that two Pharisees... Who were, who were afraid to identify with our Lord Jesus in his life, become emboldened in his death. And they are caring for our Lord's body off the cross. Where are the disciples? The disciples have fled. They're not even there. Evidently, John is the only one who's the eyewitness. Maybe some others hid behind rocks and watched. I don't know. So the irony is that that a man like Nicodemus who sneaked into Jesus at night because he did not want to identify with him in the daytime, in his lifetime, but in his death he becomes emboldened while the disciples who identified completely with Jesus in his life becomes cowards in his death. It's flip-flop, isn't it? There's a reminder there that we need to be careful about what we would say we would do in that situation. When your life is on the line, that's when you find out whether you really have convictions or not. And evidently, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus really believed at that point. And they are the ones who took him and took him down off the cross. I remember the first time I touched a dead body, not at a hospital, and not at a funeral home. I was 17 up on the Yukon, zipping a boy in a body bag who had drowned. I want to tell you something. When Joseph took the body, when Nicodemus took the body, as they held the body, they cleaned it and they wrapped it. It it had been an abused body. They knew they were handling a dead body. There's no doubt about it. Not only did... Joseph of Arimathea knew he was dead, but Pilate knew he was dead, letter C. Pilate knew that he was dead. Um, we won't take time to turn there, but it's kind of an interesting account. What happens is, if you read the parallel accounts, is that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate to request the body. They had to get permission from Pilate to take it down off the cross. And you know what it says in Mark's account in 15? What it says in Mark's account is that Pilate says, he's dead already? See, he wasn't used to the fact that in just three to five hours, the body would be dead because usually they let the person suffer for much longer time before they finally broke the legs and let him die. And so Pilate wasn't ready to release the body until he confirmed that the body was dead. And so you know what he does in Mark 15? He calls for the centurion, the centurion, the head centurion comes in and Pilate looks at him and says, hey, can I let them have the body off the cross? Is it really dead already? And they said, yeah, it's really dead. And Pilate would have never not believed the centurion. Pilate knew that the body was dead because the centurion told him the body was dead. And the centurion absolutely knew that the body was dead. The women knew that the body was dead, that the Jesus was dead. The women knew. 27.61, it says, and it's, uh, it's something to imagine... And it says, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. There were other women there as well. Hmm. What a day, huh? What a day. All that they have seen, and I'm sure they have sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And they're confused, and they're frustrated, and they can't make head nor tails out of what has happened. But they can't take their eyes off their Lord. And I think, I think they knew exactly when he yielded himself up. You know, sometimes when you're at the bedside of a loved one, some of you have been there, I've been there a number of times. And you're watching and you're waiting for that final breath. And you have to watch because they'll go like two minutes, literally, without breathing, three minutes. And then another breath comes. But then, it's over. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident that the women watched and they knew the moment that he was gone. They were right there watching. And in fact, in Mark 16, where do we find the women on resurrection morning, rising before it is yet daylight? They have their spices gathered, and they're heading where? They're heading to the tomb. Do you think that they're having this conversation? Oh, Mary, oh, I'm so happy that we can finally. I'm sure that by now the coolness of the tomb has resuscitated him. I think that he probably needs us to get him some food. I think that he's coming around. That's ridiculous. They watched him die. They watched Joseph and Nicodemus take him off. They watched him wrap. They wrapped the body. They watched it all happen. They knew that it happened. They knew they were dealing with a deceased person. And when they were going on resurrection morning to the tomb, there wasn't one iota of a thought in their mind that he was alive. They thought he was dead. They were taking spices to cover the odor of decay. And they were talking among themselves about how in the world are we going to get him in the tomb, get get in access to the body. The women knew that he was dead. The disciples knew that he was dead. The disciples knew that he was dead. In fact, on resurrection morning, when Jesus first reveals himself to a woman and tells, him, tells her to go tell the men, their response, one of them, you don't have to turn there, one of their response in Mark 16.11 is that when they heard, they would not believe. And Luke's account says that when the women told them that he was alive, they thought it was utter Nonsense. Why? Because they knew he was dead. Not so much because they saw. They ran for their lives. They knew what the Jews were going to do to him. And they didn't want it to happen to them. And in fact, later, after the resurrection, when our Lord appears to the disciples, where are they? They're hiding in, the, in a room somewhere, up in an attic, under a table, with the doors and windows barred, because they're afraid that they're going to get killed next, because they knew exactly what they did to Jesus. They killed him. There's no doubt in their mind. No doubt whatsoever. The chief priests and the guards have kind of already emphasized that. In verses 28, in chapter 28, after the resurrection, they come up with this conspiracy theory. You can also notice in 27, verse 62, that they talked about the fact that he might fake his resurrection, or somehow the disciples might fake the resurrection. They had him locked in a tomb, in the re- so all of them knew exactly where the body was, and they knew that the body was dead. There's no doubt about it. And so what do we have here? We have the record of the crucifixion unmistakably establishing the death of Christ, which creates a witness list being prepared to authenticate the literal bodily resurrection of our Lord that is only hours away. They knew he was dead, but people want to undermine the death of Christ so that they can undermine the resurrection of Christ. Listen, just don't ever say, well, maybe he didn't really die. It doesn't fit the facts. Secondly, the death of Christ, not only was it unmistakable, but the death of Christ was unavoidable. The death of Christ was unavoidable. Here's another thing that people sometimes wonder about. Why did God do it this way? I mean, God is an infinite God. Couldn't God have an infinite number of ways to provide a salvation for people? How is it that this had to happen? And if he did do it another way, couldn't he have done it in such a way that it wasn't so painful? Let's just think about this for a minute. Listen. It was unavoidable. Don't ever say there might have been an easier way because this is exactly the way it was supposed to be and there is only one right way and this is the perfect plan of God. First of all, you need to understand that it happened this way. Why did it happen this way? It happened this way because sin demanded it. Sin demanded it. What do I mean by that? Listen, Romans 6.23 says what? For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And one thing you need to understand that the reason Jesus died is because he was taking responsibility for the sin of the world. And God has a universal spiritual law that anywhere there's sin, there's death. That's why we die, people. I'm talking about this body, pulse. You're going to die. Everybody in this room is going to die. I know we don't like to think about it. I know it seems far away. It's not that far away. If I live to be 80, that would be pretty good. If I live to be 80, that's 23 years. I've been the pastor in this church for 23 years. Folks, I'm not going to be here much longer. You've got to start thinking about your next pastor. 23 good years. I might be able to crank it here at 78, 79, but probably not 80. I've got to just cut wood then. <laughs> Why do we have to die? I don't want to die. I don't want to die either. I'm just now getting out of adolescence at 57. (laughs) It makes a whole lot of sense to live to be 960-some years or 690-some years. No, but we live in a sin-cursed world, and we live in a body of death because we live in a sinful body, and sin always demands death. Hebrews says that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no other way to bring a remission of sin, to remove sin, to remove the responsibility of sin apart from somebody dying for the sin. Every sin, all sin, little sin, big sin, medium sin, sin. All sin means death. You cannot avoid it. You can't get around it. It is real It's God's universal spiritual law based upon the holiness of his character and based upon the contrary nature of the sinfulness of mankind. It demands death. And so why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did God do it this way? Because somebody had to die. Why Jesus? Because Jesus was the only one who was qualified. You're not good enough to keep the law. Jesus kept the law. Jesus met the standard in God's eyes as the God-man, as the one who alone would qualify and say, I can substitute in, keep that word in mind, we're going to talk about it again, I can substitute my way in here, and I can cover this for you, Jesus says to us. And so why did it happen this way? It happened this way because sin demands death, and Jesus' role and responsibility on earth was to take care of of the sinfulness of all mankind. That's why Romans 6.23, which we quoted him a second ago, for the wages or the result or the payment of sin is death. That's why we love that three little interruptive word, but. but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. The blood was shed. The holy demands of God were satisfied. The judge was appeased. The penalty had been paid, the electric chair had buzzed, it had taken care of its victim, and all of the righteousness of Christ is then transferred onto us. Sin demanded it. Not only did sin demand it, but Scripture predicted it. Scripture predicted it. Why did it have to happen this way? Why couldn't it have been another way? Why couldn't there have been an easier way? In fact, Jesus even prayed that, didn't he? In the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before this, when our Lord sweat teardrops of blood... Sweat drops of blood. In agonizing prayer in the garden, what was his prayer? Lord, if it be possible, would you please remove this cup from me? I don't know if I can drink out of this cup. Isn't there another plan? The answer was no. And Jesus' prayer ended, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's a prayer that we need to learn to pray. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And so... Even when our Lord prayed, there was no other way. And the reason there was no other way, one of the reasons there was no other way, is that the scriptures predicted it. Okay, so we won't take the time right now to look them up but some of the couple of the key passages pertaining to exactly the way the death of Christ would take place two key old testament passages among many there are dozens and dozens of old testament prophecies fulfilled psalm 22 for example and isaiah 53 things like being pierced with the spear things like being crucified between two thieves things like being having his name above his head and being mocked by the crowds all of these things are predicted but you see, here's what happens. We don't read our Bible correctly. Well, we're reading in Matthew's account, and we say, wow, that was prophesied in Scripture. For example, when I read earlier, when I read earlier in um, Matthew 21, remember it said um, on, on Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as we call it? And it said, um, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Did you catch that little line when I was reading? This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Listen, the entire crucifixion account took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. But the way we read our Bible is like, okay, we're reading about the death of Christ. Wow! In Psalm 22 it said this, and in Psalm 2 it said this, and in Isaiah, that's amazing. You say, "Wowzy dowsy!" It happened! And it's a little bit like we think, "Wow, what a coincidence!" Or you can't really, you don't really want to say that because you know it's not a coincidence. The Bible was authored by the Holy Spirit guided as He guided men to write the Scripture. And you know that it's truth, but you, you kind of think, wow, aren't we lucky that it all kind of turned out just right? That's not how you read Scripture. Here's how you read Scripture. When you read that it's going to happen a certain way and that he's going to have his side pierced and that he's he's going to be crucified between two thieves, then here's what you watch for. You watch for the spear and you watch for the thieves because it's going to happen exactly the way the Bible said. It cannot happen any other way. If the Scripture says it, it has to happen. That's how authoritative the Scripture is. The Word of God said it. It cannot happen any other way. And that's not a coincidence. That's what it means when it says, this is the Word of God. Bam! Bam! And so why did it happen this way? Class, that's almost a dumb question. The book said it was going to happen that way. How else could it happen other than exactly the way it said it was going to happen? And it's a very interesting Sunday school class to take the marker board, or you could use PowerPoint if you're cool, and you could make a list. Of dozens and dozens of prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ, in the death of Christ. Jesus himself said three times in Matthew, didn't he? I'm going down to Jerusalem and there they will crucify him, crucify me. But on the third day I will rise again. Jesus himself said it, it had to happen. It could, not, it could not happen any other way. God intended it. You say... Well, give me one more reason why it had to happen like this. First of all, sin demanded it. Scripture predicted it. And God intended it. And there's many verses about this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish. 1 John makes it even more clear. He gave His Son to be the Savior of the world. There's other passages of Scripture that that remind us that it was even before the foundation of the world that God's plan of salvation was enacted. It was God's plan, and God intended it exactly this way. So don't ever say, maybe there was an easier, better way. There was not. The death of Christ was unmistakable, so don't say Maybe he's really dead. I think I lost my mic just now. Maybe he wasn't really dead. The death of Christ was unavoidable, so don't say maybe there was an easier way. Thirdly, let's look and see that surrounding the events of the crucifixion, there are many unexplainable things that happen. In the death of Christ, there is the unexplainable. So don't say... There are natural explanations. Don't say, oh, I can tell you what happened there. No, you can't. It happened exactly like this. In fact, Matthew is the one who lists most of the unexplainable things that happened. It's pretty remarkable. Notice uh, it starts with verse 50. Let's let our eyes go back to the text at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they, were in, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. You see, people have an issue with the reality of the supernatural, even in scripture, and the power of God to do whatever God wants to do. I mean, there's any number of illustrations we could go through. People are always looking for natural explanation. Okay, on a simple term, for example, the story of Jonah and the great fish. So it says, God created a fish, they chunk Jonah out of the boat, the fish swallows Jonah, swims around for three days, he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights as a type of Christ, and he gets spit up on dry ground. And people do all kinds of research about some Norwegian fisherman that got swallowed by a white whale or something and lived for two and a half days before they caught the fish and cut it open, and the guy was bleached out, but he's still alive. So therefore, the Bible could have maybe happened. And so we kind of try to fit the Bible to fit our natural understanding of things. Then you take Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea. So... Israel is being chased and Moses is their leader and they're being chased in the wilderness and they come and they're trapped. They got desert to the north, desert to the south, the Red Sea to their back, Pharaoh's army crushing in on them straight ahead, the cloud and dust of the armies coming after them. They have nowhere to go. They look up and God parts the sea and some meteorological scientist somewhere says, oh, in that part of the country at certain times of the year, there's these like really strong wind storms and the wind is capable of heaping up the water and drying out the ground and this wind storm happens. To pop up just at the right time And so we have documented that these windstorms Can actually move water And it's like you're nuts man (laughs) I'll tell you what happened It happened Exactly the way the Bible says That God moved Through his servant Moses And he performed A feat that we have no For which we have no explanation And I am not embarrassed To say, I believe every ounce of that story. I think it's a great story. And I think you ruin it when you think some scientist can figure out how it happened. Because he can't. And so we have, in the death of Christ, that same kind of mentality comes to the crucifixion story. Well, let me tell you what happened. It could have happened this way, and then it could have happened that way, and then this could have happened. And I'm telling you, no, there there were unexplainable events. Here's a list of them. First of all, he yields himself, doesn't he? One of the first unexplainable things we see is in verse 50 where he yielded his spirit. We've already talked about that a little bit. In John's Gospel, Chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, it says, Jesus told his disciples, I can lay down my life anytime I want, and I can pick up my life anytime I want. And nobody else can do that. It's unexplainable. It's a demonstration of the deity of Christ. And when he yielded up his life at just the right time, the plan was done. He, when, when God looked at Jesus and saw the sin of the world upon him, And he had to turn away, and Jesus then said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know from parallel passages that Jesus had at least seven different things that he said from the cross. Matthew does not record them. Matthew only records when he said, It is finished. But he had already said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was happening? The sin of the world was heaped up upon him, and a holy God turns his face away. We sing about this. We just sang about it in his robes for mine. And so when he said it was finished and he yielded up his spirit, the plan of God was complete. The will of God was fulfilled. It was done. It was over. Every I was dotted. Every T was crossed. It was done exactly the way God planned it to be. And no one else could make that happen. He yielded himself. Secondly, the second unexplainable thing is the curtain tears. The curtain tears. Notice what it says. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It could have happened in the earthquake because there, the earth shook, so there was an earthquake. This last part of verse 51, and the rocks were split, evidently forced by the earthquake as well. The tombs then were opened, maybe related to the earthquake, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. Well, let's just break this down. Now, often when God is at work, he creates earthquakes. Things happen in Elijah's day, in Moses' day, at different times, this, there's times when just God is at work and so the earth shakes. The first thing that Matthew records that's unexplainable is that the curtain tears. What you need to know is that this takes us to Herod's temple. Herod's temple was built on Solomon's temple. It was where they worshiped. And and in the temple court area, there was an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. It was 30 feet wide, 30 feet deep, and 30 feet high. It was a place that once a year the high priest would go on behalf of all the people and offer a blood sacrifice to create an intervention between God's wrath and the people. Blood had to be shed, and in a symbolic way, this blood was shed on behalf of the people of Israel by the high priest. Extra-biblical literature tells us that it was so serious to go into the Holy of Holies where God was, that they would sew bells to the hem of his robe, his priestly robe, and they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he went in there with unclean hands or an unclean heart, God would strike him dead a little bit as a resemblance of, of the, the teetery ox cart, remember that, and the, and the Ark of the Covenant back in Samuel's day, and they're moving the Ark of the Covenant and it starts to tip off the cart and the guy reaches up to, to hold it, to steady it, and shabam, he's dead. You don't mess with the holiness of God like that. You don't touch it. And so the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, this 30 by 30 by 30 cube, and there he would intercede on behalf of the people and their sinfulness for yet another year. And God would hold back his wrath and judgment on sin. The front of that Holy of Holies is evidently covered, not with a wall or doors, but with a huge curtain or a veil, and it it evidently was 30 by 30. Some accounts believe that it was the color blue. I don't think we know for sure. They say it was the thickness of a man's wrist, so it was a fabric, 30 by 30, the thickness of a man's wrist, which would make it very, very heavy. They say you could hook ox teams to it on the corners and pull, and you couldn't tear it. And the moment our Lord Jesus said it is finished, that veil was rent from top to bottom. Bam! And the Holy of Holies is now accessible to all people in the outer court. Hmm. There's a picture there, isn't there? The earth shakes, letter C. The rocks break. The tombs open, and the saints rise. The curtain tears, the earth shakes, the rocks break, the tombs open, the saints rise, and nobody can explain that, I'm telling you. God did a mighty work that day. And you know what it says? Now Matthew brings it all together as though all of this happened in succession, but if you look closely at the text, it says on verse 53, because everybody wants to know about these people that rise from the dead. And you know what I say, you got to ask Shoopy after church, he'll tell you about it. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say, this is all it says, this is all it says right here. So you're an expert on it. You know as much as anybody else knows. Right there it is. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. But notice that it probably did not happen at the time when Jesus said it is finished. That's when the earth shook, the rocks broke, the curtain tore, but the resurrection of the saints evidently happened a nanosecond after our Lord rose from the dead because it didn't come out of their graves until after he arose. And then they went into the city as a first fruits of the resurrection. They went in as a living illustration of the the power of Christ, that he is the resurrection and the life. I don't know what else to make of that. How long did they live, Pastor Van? I have no idea. Did they ascend up into heaven with Jesus 40 days later? I have no idea. I kind of doubt it. I think they were probably a little bit like Lazarus when Jesus raised him from the dead, restored him to his sisters. The fellowship of the family was reunited, and later on he got sick and died again, and they had to go through all that grief again. I don't know. That's all I know. I know that it is a powerful moment and it's unexplainable. And just take it as it is. Matthew's the only one who writes us that. These miracles, back to our notes, that the miracles that take place at the crucifixion point to the fact that Jesus Christ was no ordinary man and that this was no ordinary event. Amen? It was also undeniable. We need to wrap up. Just listen closely. What do I mean? What's undeniable here? The reality of who Jesus was is seen in the very occurrences of the crucifixion. So don't just don't say, yeah, all right, he was a good teacher. All right. Yeah, he was a great man. He was a rabbi. He did a lot of good. Don't say that. There's two people that were there that wouldn't say that. One of them is one of the criminals who was nailed up next to him. We have two testimonies right here in our passage. There are, men, there are more, but this is an undeniable reality that Jesus was the Christ. Letter A, the testimony of the criminal. Uh, evidently, Matthew only records that the robbers, in verse 44 is his only account, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so they were evidently, there they are, they're all hanging on the cross, and they get enough air in their lungs to be able to curse him. And somewhere along the line you can read about it in Luke 23:39 to 43 it's very interesting somewhere along the line as they were reviling him the one criminal realized something wasn't right here and that this isn't just another guy it's not another teacher and somehow his eyes were open to the reality that he was hanging on a cross next to the savior of the world and he looks over and he looks and he lives. Do you remember that old Sunday night hymn we, gospel hymn we used to sing? Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. Look and live, buddy. You got the savior of the world four feet away from your left hand and look at him. And Jesus looks over at him when he believes. He expresses his faith in Christ. And Jesus says, today, pal, today you'll be with me in paradise. So one mistake you don't want to make is say, that's what I'm going to do. I got a whole lot of living to do. I got a whole lot of fun I'm going to have. I'm going to, and then right before it's time for me to die, like a nanosecond before the tractor trailer hits me head on, I'm going to say, oh, Lord, saveth me today. No, you're not. If you don't care about Christ today, you're not going to care about Christ tomorrow. Today's the day of salvation. Don't play games. He said, "Well, the thief on the, cross, thief on the cross got away with it. I'll tell you, the thief on the cross didn't get away with anything. He was accountable to his sin, and the only the only reason he got to go is because Jesus Christ died there for him, and Jesus Christ brought him into paradise with him." That's a testimony of the saving power of Christ. It's not a testimony of how slick the thief was that he could wait till the last minute and enjoy a pleasurably life of sin and then slip in the pearly gates. It's not how it works. Secondly, we have the testimony of the centurion, don't we? There he is, sitting there watching. He's the one who laid hands on him. He's the one who touched him. He grabbed his wrist and stretched him out. He had a hammer in his hand. He had a nail in his hand. He's the one that brought the hammer down. He's the one who jabbed the spear up under the ribcage. And something really different here, and he looks up, and it says others who were with him. He said, truly, this man is the Son of God. It's undeniable. What are we going to take away from this? Very quickly, just think clearly with me, though. It's very important. I think there's at least three Reminders here that are valuable to us in the word pictures that are presented. One is the criminal's faith. We've just talked about it. It's a reminder of the mercy of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? You say, Pastor Van, you have no idea of the terrible sins that I've committed. I might not. Please don't tell me. I don't need to know. And as a fact, matter of fact, I don't really care. All I care about is that you look to the Savior and live. And don't tell me that your sin is too bad because the thief on the cross, who was probably a guerrilla fighter and had been a brutal man fighting to overthrow Rome, they call him thieves here as well. And the idea is that in a nanosecond, his faith in Christ saved him. And in a nanosecond, your faith in Christ can save you. Why? second lesson is the reminder of the torn veil. And what is that? That's a reminder, listen, it's a big word, of the sufficiency, the sufficiency of Christ, death. What do I mean by that? This is really an interesting topic, but in summary, you know know a little bit about all of the blood of the Old Testament sacrificial animals, right? Sheep and goats and pigeons and doves and calves. And they slaughtered and they slaughtered and they slaughtered and they slaughtered and it was all symbolic. And and the high priest would go in and even on behalf of the entire nation make a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. Hey, that old Twilight Paris song from way back in the 80s or something that we sang this morning? I like that song. That's why we sing it. I pick out the songs. <laughs> His only son. This is right. O Lamb of God. Sweet Lamb of God. Why do we call Jesus the Lamb of God? We just sang it. Because he went to the cross and he once and for all did what. All of the sum cumulative sacrifices of the Old Testament could not do. That's what the book of Hebrews is arguing. That all of those sacrifices were inadequate, but the blood of one lamb could take care of everything. It was a sufficient death. You no longer needed a high priest to sacrifice for you. And so when the veil is rent, it's it's an image of the fact that salvation is complete. It's done. It's sufficient. Finally, number three, Joseph's tomb. It's a reminder of the substitutionary death of Christ. The substitutionary death of Christ. I think it's kind of cool that Joseph of Marithea could grow up and tell people, hey, guess who, guess who laid in my casket? Jesus. Yeah. Do you know that all of us who are in Christ can say the same thing? Guess who went into my tomb? Guess who took care of my dead bones? Guess who filled my tomb so I don't have to go there? Who died for me so I don't have to die? He substituted in my place. Amen. Amen. Praise God for this detailed account. Do you understand a little bit better now why we're obsessed with this death? Why we will wake up on a beautiful Sunday morning, even though it's freezing out still with snow, and we'll take a shower and put on smelly goo and kind of put on halfway good clothes, unless you're Kevin Tucker. (laughs) and go to church and talk about the precious blood. What kind of weird people are you? Are you a cult? Are you obsessed with death that you would sing songs about blood? No, no, no. We are the thief on the cross. We are the ones who deserve to be put in the tomb We are the ones who had somebody substitute in our place by fulfilling the requirements of our holy judge God. And he died for us because it was required and he shed his blood for us. And so it's precious to us because we look to him and live. Praise God. Will you stand? Thank you for your patience always. With your heads bowed. Just you ask yourself if you understand the substitutionary death of Christ once and for all? That he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And you acknowledge your sinfulness before a holy God. And you tell God that you are trusting in the finished work of Christ. That he has satisfied the demands of God's wrath for you. Paid the penalty for your sin. And now you tell him, God, I know I'm a sinner but I put my faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did for me, substituting in my place. That's why we're obsessed with this death. Only you can take care of your spiritual issues with God. And only you can do this through Christ. And so, Father, continue to teach us, continue to grow us, thank you for the work, the finished and completed work of Christ that once and for all it was done. We want to be a grateful people. We want a people who live out now the claims and the teachings of Christ. We rejoice in this death and all that it means to us. In Jesus' name I pray, committing ourselves to you for another week, should you tarry. Amen. Amen.